welcome to Tales of Panam, a Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is at Tales of Panam on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for updates, episode information, and more. This week's episode will cover chapters 23 through 27, aka the end of Catching Fire. And as usual, I'm going to start off with a brief recap of the chapters. Katniss informs her allies of Wyrus's discovery about the arena being a clock, and they decide to go to the cornucopia to observe the jungle and confirm her theory. While they are there, the careers attack, killing Wyrus. They manage to kill Kashmir and Gloss, but Brutus and Obaria escape into the jungle. While collecting water with Finnick, Katniss hears Prim screaming in the jungle. She runs off to find her and discovers that it's a jabberjay. Finnick follows her and hears another of the birds screaming in the voice of his lover, Annie. He comes to the conclusion that they must have tortured his and Katniss's loved ones for the Jabberjays to be able to record the screams to repeat. They try to escape the wedge, but it has been sealed so that they cannot leave until the hour is up. After the time passes, Peta and Beatty reassure them that the screams were just altered recordings of their voices. That night, while on watch, Peta tells Katniss that he knows Hamish made a deal with her, but that he also told Peta he would help him save Katniss. He shows her his locket, which contains photos of Gail, Prim, and Katniss's mother, using this to try and convince her that she has to live. She responds by telling him that she needs him, and they share a kiss that is more real than any they've had before. Beatty comes up with a plan to use the lightning and his wire to electrocute the careers, and everyone agrees to it. The group travels to the lightning tree to set their trap. Katniss and Joanna leave to take the wire to the beach, leaving Finnick and Peta at the tree with Beatty. While they are walking, someone cuts the wire. Joanna hits Katniss over the head with it and tells her to stay down, running off after the careers. Katniss makes her way back to the tree in search of Peta, but instead finds an unconscious Beatty. Seeing what he was about to attempt, she wraps the wire around an arrow and shoots it into the force field, which begins to burn up and collapse. Katniss is lifted out of the arena into a hovercraft where she finds Plutarch, Heavensby, Finnick, and Haymitch. Haymitch informs her that they are working for the Rebellion, and half of the district's tributes agreed to help her get out at any cost. He also tells her that Joanna and Peta have been captured by the capital. The book ends with Gail telling Katniss that District 12 is gone, having been destroyed by firebombs. So, this is very exciting. One, because we have now finished Catching Fire, which means we finished two out of three books of our original trilogy, and also two out of four books total. Um, But also because this is officially the longest recap I've ever given for a section of chapters. Um, so that just tells you how much is actually going on here. And I really, really shortened it down. Like I definitely had to cut out a lot from this recap just to make it this short, which means I just have a lot to talk about. Also noteworthy, um, it is currently 12.30 a.m. when I'm recording this. Uh, and the reason for that is not because I didn't have any other time to do it. It's simply because I wasn't doing anything and I felt like recording right now. Um, but what that means for all of you is that this episode might be just a little bit more unhinged than usual because it is quite late. But all that being said, let's get into these chapters. So obviously everything kind of gets unraveled toward the end here. Like we find out what the entire plan has been, how many people were in on it, everything like that. But I'm going to kind of start from the beginning of these chapters and work my way up to that. However, the first thing I do want to talk about is Plutarch, because he does tip off Katniss to the fact that the arena is going to be a clock. Not that she really puts it together until after Wyrus has kind of helped her figure it out, but he does show her, like, his watch with the Mockingjay on it, which is supposed to be a way of showing her, like, one, he's kind of, like, he can be trusted. Again, not that she did trust him after that, because he was still the head game maker, 
Um, and like, why would she have any reason to trust him just based on that? But like looking back, she's like, okay, I see what that interaction was. Still doesn't make a lot of sense because at that point she still doesn't know that he's working for the rebellion, but she still kind of puts it together that maybe he was trying to help her in some way. And again, it would be the assumption that she would be a mentor in those games anyway, but still. But here's the thing that really gets interesting for me with Plutarch is that obviously we find out at the end of this book that he has been working with the rebels for years um, and tipped Katniss off to the arena thinking that maybe she would be like a mentor or whatever. Um, And then obviously comes to find out that she's actually going to be in the arena and then hatches this plan to sort of extract her with the help of the tributes from half of the districts. But in the movie... It's it's kind of a different situation because, and this is a deleted scene, so like technically it's not like to be held to, but if you take that deleted scene as like movie canon, basically what happens is Plutarch is the one who actually goes in and switches the envelope saying like what the quarter well is going to be. Um, and it's also like heavily implied that it was his plan to like get all the victors in there to get Katniss out. But in the book, it's more reads as like, he didn't know that that was going to be what the quarter call was but it also is still like Katniss thinks it's a little suspicious that like she's suddenly becoming a problem and then all of a sudden it's like oh look the victors are going back into the arena which could definitely have been like in the book it could have just been Snow's plan to do that and he didn't tell anyone else but in the movie it's definitely like Plutarch had a hand in it and that was kind of his plan all along and I think it actually makes him and he has a lot there's a lot to talk about with him in terms of like what he's what he's even doing this whole time um but that's more what we'll get into in Mockingjay but I think that I don't know it makes because the thing is if he he did switch those envelopes he knew that he was putting all those victors who'd already suffered so much back into this arena just for the sake of getting Katniss out which I think that he would do if that was his plan because it's very well established that like he would kind of do anything for the rebellion even if it means like putting people in situations that he wishes he didn't have to but I do think it looks slightly better for him if he didn't know this was happening didn't want them to go back in there but then once he found out they were was like okay how can this fit into our plan and saw it as an opportunity to get them out so I just think it's interesting because it changes his character a little bit whether it's like he's just adapting to what the quell is throwing at him or if he actually had a hand in getting them all back in there. But for the purposes of the book, we assume that he didn't know at this point. That's the perspective that I take when I see like him tipping her off is that he just thought that she would be a mentor and wanted to like show that she could trust him because he's obviously going to be the hardest for her to trust because she already trusts Hamish. She's starting to trust Finnick. But to her, he's just a head game maker who's been making her life miserable the past few days with all these like horrible things that he's come up with. Um, so it's going to take a lot more than just showing her a watch to gain her trust. And I don't even think that it's like at the end of this book, he's like, oh, I'm a rebel. And she's like, oh my God, that's great. I trust you so much. Because we've talked before about how she has difficulty trusting in general. And he's probably like one of the hardest people in the world for her to ever be able to trust. So that's going to be a long process for them character who really gets to shine in these chapters of course is Beatty to completely shift gears here um Beatty is obviously very smart like very smart like I I talk a lot about various characters who I think are really intelligent in very different ways but Beatty is just like smart smart which he's from district three so he has a lot of technical knowledge 
But even beyond that, he just is really smart, really intuitive. He's a good teacher. There's the moment where he's explaining their plan to them. Katniss is like, I feel like I'm in school being taught, but not in like a condescending way, just in a like, he is so much smarter than everyone here and we all know it way. But I, I do, I think that he's a very interesting character and I think he's extremely valuable to the rebellion. It's mentioned at the end that like the different participants in the plan had varying degrees of knowledge. And I have to believe that BD knew the most, um, just out of necessity, but also out of like, he can handle it. I also think that Finnick knew a lot because he was like their ally from the beginning, um, that Hamish like set it up to be like that. But I do truly believe that like BD was kind of the, the mastermind on the like tributes and like he knew everything that was going on. Um, because like when he introduces his plan to blow out the force field, even Finnick and Joanna, like, it's not a plan that they've heard before. Um, and so it's not like that was something they all came up with beforehand. I also just want to acknowledge how cool I think it is. The idea of using the bread as a communication tool, like sending them the 24 rolls of bread from District 3. So it's like on the third day at hour 24. So midnight is when we're going to do the extraction. It's actually brilliant honestly um and I just I love that detail and I think it's super cool when it's revealed at the end because you're like they keep getting these like large amounts of bread all from district three why is Finnick always like oh we need to count the bread why are they acting so like intense about the amount of bread that we're getting and Katniss also is like also counting them because she's thinking of it in terms of like we need to feed all of us and how is this going to divide up but she doesn't know that that the rest of them, PETA excluded, are thinking it from a perspective of like, this is our one method of communication with the rebels while we're inside the arena. And I just think it's really cool and really smart. Um, and just like the ways in which they have been communicating and planning for the past several years in some of their cases, because it's not like they can just go flat out talk about it and also with communication among like people of different districts and the victors like it's not like you can just go to that district and have a conversation or like call them on the phone they only see each other at the games and so it's really like communicating that stuff across districts is really difficult and I've talked about how like that's the hardest part of organizing a rebellion in Panem is like it's so hard to communicate with people outside of your district or to even know what's going on in the other districts and this, I think it's so interesting that, like, Beatty knows a lot about the other districts. And part of it is because he wor- he's worked in, like, communication and technology, I think. But also, I think it's partially from, like, working so closely with the rebels, which, again, leads me to believe that, like, he knew the most about their plan. But, like, he knows a lot about, like, how District 12 works and even, like, some of the other districts. Like, and, and, like, he has that moment where he's talking about, like things down in the coal mines but it kind of extends outside of just district 12 too um so i definitely think that's stuff he picked up on from working with the rebels especially like Hamage, obviously being the one from district 12 he also i it's sad when he when they lose wireless because it's very clear that bd had like such a great amount of respect for her like even when everyone else is like she's kind of crazy she's kind of losing it he's the one who like sticks up for her and is like actually she's super smart and beyond that she's very intuitive and like compares her to the canary in the mines um which I love as a comparison one because it's very accurate two because it rings very true and like close to home for Katniss and also because it ties back to the theme of songbirds 
um, which is even more relevant now that we literally have a novel called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. But even like before that book existed, obviously, like the symbol of the entire series is the Mockingjay. But like there are other types of birds. And I like that we kind of have that common thread. Also with birds, we have the Jabberjays, which I think are literally terrifying. Um, I already thought they were kind of creepy when I first read the books because like they're birds that can repeat human voices, especially when they're used in this context to like emulate the screams of people that you care about is obviously very disturbing. Um, but I just think in general, like birds being able to create such human sounds is always really like off-putting to me, especially these that are so real and like it's all recorded and the way that they were used during the war to like spy on the rebels and report back information is really creepy and kind of sinister. But also I did read Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Um, and if you don't literally want to have a nightmare thinking about Jabberjays after reading that book, because it's, it's quite dark. Um, but yeah, so this, this scene with the Jabberjays is so, it's so jarring because, and this is even like said on the page that like, it's so different from everything else they faced because they faced now like monkeys, fog, they fought the careers, like all this stuff. The spinning corn copio is crazy. But the Jabberjays are so psychological and you're literally trapped in there. So like you can't escape it. And it's not about causing physical harm to you. It's about like breaking you down mentally. And it is very effective because it gets like, that's what their whole thing is, is Katniss is like, oh, it's just a Jabberjay. And Phoenix like, yeah, but how do you think they got those recordings? And then they kind of come to the conclusion that they, they must have done something with their families which they soon learn that, like, it's super easy to, like, manipulate those recordings. But in the moment when you're just surrounded by the screams of, like, everyone you know and care about, it's, like, really bad for them. Um, and, yeah, they're both really super shaken after it, more so than they are from any of the, like, physical trials they faced while in the arena. And I think that's, like, I don't want to say the genius of the Jabberjays because it's, like, super messed up, but it is in the way that like they are very unique as a threat because it's not something that you can heal it, it's not like it's not something like a sponsor can send you medicine for or food or water like it's not something like that also after that is a great joanna moment every joanna moment is great i'm being so truthful when i say that i think that she's literally perfect um but this is a particularly good one when Peta's kind of reassuring Katniss like they didn't do anything to your family to prim to Gail like everyone is fine it was just a trick and Joanna is like yeah they're not going to do anything to your sister because the entire country loves her which I've also talked about before um but then she was she says something along the lines of like if they did anything to your sister there would be like rebellions all across the country and everyone is kind of like are you crazy for saying that in here no one says anything rebellious in the games like you just don't do it you don't say anything rebellious ever but specifically like when you're in the arena it doesn't happen and her response to that is basically like there's nobody left that I care about so what are they gonna do to me um literally heartbreaking literally heartbreaking and I just I just think that Joanna deserves so much better I mean you already even if you haven't read Mockingjay yet like the book literally this book literally ends with her getting captured by the capital 
Um, so you can kind of figure that it's not going to be great for her, especially because she actually, unlike PETA, does know a lot about the Rebels' plan. Um, and also, which Finnick points out to Katniss, is that like PETA can be used as a sort of bait for her, but they don't need Joanna for that purpose with anyone. So yeah, spoiler alert, it's going to be bad for her. Um, much as it's going to be terrible for literally everyone and Mockingjay is to this day the most emotionally harrowing thing I've ever read in my life so it's it's just really dark it's truly so dark but another Joanna related thing in this chapter or in these chapters is that Katniss is gaining a lot of respect for her at first Katniss doesn't really like her and to be fair she doesn't really seem to like Katniss all that much either but you know as these chapters start to go on Katniss begins to see that like one she's kind of she's like lost everyone like she's doing really poorly actually um and she kind of uses her like hostility and snarkiness to kind of like cover try to cover that up but once they start working together more in these chapters Katniss starts to see like a bit more of who she actually is underneath all of that um and gain like some more respect for her and not feel so like like a, like toward it's the beginning of the section she's like I would literally kill her if it weren't for like maintaining this alliance um but by the end it's getting a little better for them which is great because they have a really well I won't say that that's I don't want to spoil anything and I love their dynamic so much I think it's it's really interesting it's really unique I think that obviously all the relationship dynamics in this series are super unique that's part of what makes it so good um, but theirs is one of my favorites. Um, just to quickly mention and then never talk about again, one of the, like, wedges of the arena has this thing that they just called the beast. What if I literally have nightmares about this? Because all they see is someone's body getting taken out of there in, like, five different pieces. What is in there? What is in there? It haunts me to this day. And I, like, I don't ever want to know because I think it's horrifying. But also, like, it's been 10 years. I'm kind of curious, you know. Um, but I just feel like I do need to bring it up because it is literally horrifying. Um, not that every other sector isn't also horrifying. But that one, particularly because we don't actually know what causes it. We just know that it's real bad. And then they just never mention it again. And I'm like, no, because I'm actually haunted by this. Okay, we all know what time it is. It is time for us to talk about the iconic beach scene, arguably the most iconic Everlark scene. Every book, okay, every book has one really iconic scene for them. The first book, obviously the cave scenes, obviously. The second book, this scene on the beach. Mockingjay, I know what it is, but I will not say it for spoiler's sake. Um... But if you've read it or even just watched it, you probably know what I'm referring to. But yeah, this beach scene is maybe the most iconic, even out of those. In which, basically, they're both like, we have to acknowledge the fact that both of us are fighting so hard to keep the other one alive. And at the end of the day, one of us is not walking out of here. Pita, being the person that he is, is like, I will use my power with words to convince you that you should just let me die. But he has this locket that is like his token that has a picture of Prim and, and Katniss's mother and Gail in it. And basically his argument to her is like, you have people outside of here who need you, like literally need you to survive. 
your family needs you to provide for them and like you and Gail are so close you've been his best friend forever and stuff like that whereas for PETA no one really needs him and I don't mean that in a like oh man no one would care if he died way but like and it's what Katniss says too is that like his family can survive without him his friends can survive without him but she says and I quote because it's so good I realize only one person will be damaged beyond repair if PETA dies. Me. What if I literally was like um, like having a meltdown while reading this, even though I have read it five million times and watched the movie a trillion times, but it just hits every single time because this is the moment when she realized like how much she actually needs him. I think that it's the moment with the force field where he almost dies is when she's like, oh, he could fully die in here and I would have to live without him. That's bad. But this is a moment where she realizes, like, I don't think that I could live without him. Um, And it goes beyond just, like, their agreements to keep each other alive, their fake romance, anything that they've done for the games before. But what I love about this moment between them is that it's truly just for them. Like, yes, every camera is on them. I'm sure the entire country is watching everything that they're saying to each other. But she specifically notes the fact that PETA doesn't mention the quote-unquote baby at all during this interaction, which, like, obviously, if this were all for show for the games, that would be the first thing he'd mention because it's very popular with the sponsors to be like, remember that she's literally pregnant? But he doesn't bring that up at all, and that's how she knows that he's being genuine. And she's also being genuine when she realizes, like, she couldn't live without him. And then they kiss, and basically... This is when she's like, oh man, I'm actually having like real romantic feelings for this boy right now. So true. So true. I think that this is the first moment between them that is truly like everything they're feeling is real. Nothing is being done for show. Like it literally, if you think all the way back, even when it's just them, there's still this like looming, like we have to convince everyone that we're in love or we'll literally die. But now... They know that one of them is going to die anyway. And so they're really just like putting it all on the table. But PETA actually is upset the next day because he realizes that his argument and with the lock and everything didn't convince her that she should survive and he should die. But yeah, this is definitely one of, if not their best moment. And yeah, like I said, it's a moment where everything becomes very, very real to her, including like her feelings and how much she literally needs him to survive. It's just so good. It's just so good. Suzanne Collins wrote The Romance of All Time, and we truly get to live in a world where Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark exist. And I think that I am grateful for that every single day because they're actually the only relationship that ever matters, ever. Um, Sorry to every other fictional relationship, but you can go home because you didn't have the Catching Fire Beach scene. Anyway, moving along to things that are not fun and romantic. Um, I wouldn't be me if I didn't say it. If you've not read Mockingjay yet, you're going to have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But the I'll see you at midnight line where she says bye to him before they start unspooling the wire. I know that we all now know that, like, he does get taken by the Capitol after these games, so she said that to him and then, like, doesn't see him at midnight because he's in the Capitol. Um, 
but spoiler alert it's a lot more sad than that and that is all I will be saying at this time and if you think that if you've not if you've never read Mockingjay and don't know what happens first of all I'm so jealous of you wish I could re-experience it for the first time but second of all you might be thinking like oh I have an idea of what's gonna happen you are incorrect <laughs> you are incorrect nothing in life could have prepared me for what actually happens in Mockingjay regarding Peter Malark which is great because I love a book that makes me so shocked that my jaw is literally on the floor but yeah I will just say that right now that any guess that you might have about what happens to him is probably wrong and if it's right I am very impressed and want to see inside your brain because I could never have predicted it. I like to think that I was pretty deep into the series but yeah I could never have been prepared. So anyway for those of us who have read Mockingjay and I talk about how I literally almost cry every time I read the like I'll see you at midnight. Haha, <laughs> bye. You know why. You totally understand why. And I literally cannot read that scene the same way again. I wish I could reread that scene for the first time and just be like, oh, that's cute. Mm, no, I can never do that again. So, but that officially brings us to the lightning tree. Now, this obviously, I just feel crazy about like the Hunger Games in general, hence why I have an entire podcast about it. But there are certain little things within the series that we know that I feel a lot more strongly about and have spent a lot of time in my life thinking about. Obviously, Haymitch is a big one, um, the biggest one. There are so many other examples. But one of them is the events of the last night in the arena and Catching Fire and Beatty's plan and the lightning tree and everything that happens there. Because I think that this scene is so genius because we get it all from Katniss's perspective, who has just suffered a traumatic head injury and is incredibly disoriented and also doesn't know anything about the Rebels' plan, so she's basically just stumbling around experiencing everything and we're getting it through her eyes. But (laughs) then when she escapes the arena, we get the whole rest of the plan, and so then we start to kind of piece together, like, what people were actually doing, if not, like, betraying them and trying to kill them. But the the third piece of this And this is, I will be going into my whole spiel about here's what happened at every second of this night because I spent a large portion of my life thinking about it. Um, And I have come to the conclusion that I have officially broken it down and figured out exactly what happened. Um, And I'm choosing to believe I'm right because there's no one, no one has contradicted me. Um, If Suzanne Collins would like to contact me and tell me if I'm right or not, that would be great. But the third piece of figuring out what happened on this night, and this is, It's not really spoilers because it's all things that do happen on this night, Um, but we don't actually get Peta's perspective of it until in Mockingjay. I won't say how we get it, but we do get it. So the things that I'm saying that he is doing are mostly coming from Mockingjay, but again, like it's not spoilers. It's all stuff that we already know happened. We just don't know the specific events, but if you really don't want to hear it, I guess you can kind of skip forward past this, Um, but I promise I won't really spoil anything. So, we're at the lightning tree, right? BD's plan is to, what he tells them his plan is, is to, like, wrap the wire around the tree and then have them bring it down to the beach and then electrocute the careers. But his other secondary plan is to wrap it around his knife and then jam it into the force field as the lightning strikes, taking out the force field so that the rebels can come in and save them. He sends Joanna and Katniss off with the wire to unspool it and the reason he splits up Katniss and Peta is obviously because they're the two people who don't know what's going on, like what the plan is. So he needs to make sure that one of them is with 
one of the people who do know and also because he can, he is smart enough to figure out that they are realizing there's not that many people left and now might be a good time to break the alliance so it's just better to keep them separated so they're going down to the beach the wire gets cut brutus and enobaria cut the wire this is when joanna hits katniss over the head and cuts her arm which we now know was her taking the tracker out of her arm and then basically tells her to like play dead and then runs off and then the careers kind of start to run off after her and also keep in mind that it's midnight when all of this is happening so it's dark which is important because it's the reason why things are not so clean cut is because no one can see anything that well so they follow joanna finnick and Peta, obviously alerted to the fact that the wire has been cut one because they can probably like hear some of the stuff that's going on because katniss and joanna are far away but not that far and also because like the wire being cut would affect the way it feels on their end, whether it like goes slack or bounces back. Point is, they figure out something is going on. So they start to go after Joanna and Katniss. BD obviously stays by the tree. Finnick is, as we know, much faster than PETA. PETA can't move that fast because of his leg. And so they go running off. And now what I assume happened is that Finnick got too far ahead of PETA and then that's how they get separated because we know they're not together. So they get separated. Peta at this point witnesses Brutus killing Chaff, which we know happens because in Mocking Jay he says that it did. And that's why like around this time the first cannon goes off. And so Katniss during all of this is like super disoriented but she decides she needs to get up and go find Peta because she needs to save him that's her whole thing here so she starts heading back to the tree she passes finnick along the way because finnick is still looking for her and joanna he calls out for them but she doesn't respond and continues making her way back towards the tree she gets back to the tree and finds bd unconscious now here's the thing he, ha- he has a gash on his arm, first of all, but also he has the wire wrapped around the knife. And so there's a thought that maybe he would have, he tried to jam the knife into the force field and then it like shot him back like it did with PETA earlier. But like, do we really believe that that happened? Because Beatty's whole thing is that he's literally a genius. I don't think that he would have tried to stab the knife into the force field before the lightning struck since it was so obviously their plan to hit it at the same time so that the force field would get electrocuted. So what more likely happened is that one of the couriers knocked him out and we know that it must have had to be Anabaria because Brutus is off killing Chaff. So more likely Anabaria knocked him out during their whole everyone's running around like crazy near the tree because we know that Finnick obviously heads back in that direction and so we can assume that like Finn or Brutus and Anabaria did too and we know that Brutus did and they would typically stick at least somewhat together. So uh, my guess is that Enobaria knocked out Beatty. Now while Katniss is at the tree, she hears Peta calling her name and she starts yelling his name back because she knows that he's going to attract attention and she th- figures that he's far away, not sup- like close enough that she can hear him, but far enough away that he can't quickly get to her, especially with the speed that he's able to move because of his leg. So she starts yelling back which alerts Finnick and Enobaria to her location. They both arrive at the tree, and this is when she's, like, about to shoot Enobaria, but then decides against it because of what Hamish said to her. 
And around this time is when the second cannon goes off, which is, as we know from Mockingjay, PETA killing Brutus because PETA witnesses Brutus killing Chaff. And then after PETA starts shouting Candace's name, Brutus finds him. And that's why he stops shouting for a second. He kills Brutus and then he starts yelling her name again, which is how that she knows that he is still alive. But she doesn't know who's died. She just knows that two of the three, Chaff, Brutus, and Joanna are dead. And then we obviously learn that Joanna's alive. But the actual events were Brutus killed Chaff and then Peter killed Brutus. Now, I'm like getting out of breath. I don't, I, every time someone, every time I bring this up and I'm like, I have a lot of thoughts about like what happened at that tree. And someone's like, oh, what are they? And I'm like, are you prepared for me to talk for like eight minutes about the specific events of this entire night? Because that's what it, I mean when I say that I have a lot of thoughts about it. So now Finnick and Obaria are at the tree. Finnick and Obaria, excuse me. Um, Peta is somewhat nearby killing Brutus. Chaff is dead. Joanna is somewhere. Far enough away, probably closer towards... She, here's the thing. Joanna also gets picked up by the Capitol, so she's probably somewhat closer to Peta than she is to like Katniss and Finnick and Beatty. Um, so likely what happened is she heard Peta yelling Katniss's name and started going off in his direction to try to save him before she heard Katniss yelling his name back. Because we also know that she, like, led the careers away from her. Anyway, so now <laughs> Katniss realizes what Beatty's plan was and she decides to carry that out. So she wraps the wire around her arrow and she'd sit at the force field. And then obviously Finnick is right there. Beatty is right there. And Obari is nearby, but, like, she's not a part of this. So the rebels are able to rescue her, Finnick, and Beatty. Well, Joanna and Peta get captured, and also Joanna and Peta still had their trackers in their arms because Katniss's had been cut out, um, and so that's another reason why the Capitol was able to locate them. So there you have it. Um, I've spent a lot of time piecing that together because there's like five million things happening, and you don't actually see most of it. Most of it is either from like later accounts of it by PETA or from Katniss's like foggy mental state because she just got hit over the head with a giant coil of wire um and like in reality it doesn't actually really matter how that that, that specifically is what happened it matters kind of how things shake out um but I think it's fun to think about so I have pieced it together to the best of my ability based on like canon timing and people shouting (laughs) so anyway I just had to put that out there it is one of the things that I do love to talk about a lot when it comes to this book but now finally Katniss gets rescued and she finds Plutarch, Hamish, and Finnick and they're like we're the rebellion um or we're part of the rebellion Hamish is the one who tells her that Peta ended up in the capital and this makes her mad in a way that few other things could and I think what's what's really noteworthy to me here is like the level of betrayal that she feels is something that could not be matched by anyone else because Hamish is someone that not only does she just trust because of everything that he's done for her, but she feels like they have this really deep understanding of each other, which they do, but she feels that it extends to like knowing that Peta is the one of the three of them who deserve to live the most. And she thought that that was like what they concluded that night when she goes to him and asks her to or asked him to save Peta, but now she's finding out that actually the whole time he was working to save her, and so he kind of lied to her when he said that he would prioritize Peta's life over hers, and now Peta's in the capital because of it. 
Um, and at the beginning of Mockingjay, they do kind of get into it being like, it's not solely Hamish's fault, obviously. But the, the, the betrayal that she feels from this is so deep. And it's something that like, I don't think a betrayal from any other person could hit as hard because of that way that they are so similar. They truly do understand each other. And now she doesn't even have that to rely on. Um, so she doesn't, she finds it a lot harder to trust him after this. And they kind of have to work at rebuilding that in Mockingjay. And then we have her in this, like, she doesn't trust Plutarch, obviously. She sort of trusts Finnick, but, like, not completely, you know? Like, they're still working on it. So she's kind of lost here. Of course, Gail does show up. Ugh. Good for, it's good for her to have someone that she cares about, but, like, it's not good for me because I, I prefer when Gail is not around. Um, but District 12 did get destroyed. And he does tell her that her mother and sister made it out. Thank goodness they are okay. But yeah, District 12 gets destroyed as sort of like a way to kind of get back at her for everything that she's done. Because she, the Capitol knows that the best way to target her is not to go after her. It's to go after people she cares about. And so to literally destroy her entire district is like one of the biggest ways that they could hurt her. Um because she also cares really deeply about other people, not even just, like, people that she personally knows and is friends with or family with or, like, really loves and cares about, but just, like, people in general. So, like, people dying because of her actions is, like, literally the last thing she would want and is the greatest sort of weapon that the Capitol has against her is that, like, they know that about her. So, yeah, that's Catching Fire. Incredible book. First of all, I'm very excited to talk about the movie um, because I think that it is the greatest film adaptation or like book to film adaptation of all time. And I literally have like no notes about it. And also for me personally, for my little deleted scene segment, there's some good ones. So we'll be getting into all of that. And I'm also extremely excited to talk about Mockingjay because I think I literally said the very first week I was on here that it's my favorite of well of all four books which says a lot about me who like 15 minutes ago I was like my is the most emotionally harrowing thing I've ever read um but that is truly one of the reasons why I love it so much it is it is quite a lot I did I do remember as a kid I read it like in one sitting um which I'm one not that fast of a reader unless I'm like really getting into something and also reading just like wasn't my favorite thing to do so that was like a big thing for me to have read that all in one sitting um but now looking back from an emotional standpoint I'm like girl how did you do that because now when I go to reread it I have to like take breaks because it's a lot but I think it just truly had me like gripped and I needed to finish it and know what happened because I had no idea what happened when I first read it and also I like things that make me feel like a million emotions and make me cry and make me like genuinely feel something for the characters so that's obviously a strong point for Mockingjay in my mind. Thanks for joining me this week on Tales of Panam. Next week is the first week of the month so I'll be doing my monthly character study episode which will be on Finnick O'Dare. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email which is talesofpanam at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or rating of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week.